we're looking at this passage in James as one of the last ones in the book. And next Lord's Day, perhaps, will be the last time we go through the text. I may have one more message in James up my sleeve after that as we kind of look at the whole books, kind of stepping back, at the, looking at the whole letter. But this morning we'll be in James 5, 13 through 18. And let's continue to pray that God will use this word and minister it to us. We've, we were very familiar with it. Many of you have this memorized. And there's a danger in familiarity because we, we let words just go by us. And yet there is great weight in this text and a great message that we need to follow. We're looking at it under the title, Pray to God Effectively, because this whole section is about prayer. And the second half of verse 16 contains what I think is the central idea in these words. The prayer of a righteous person has great power or great effectiveness as it is working, as it is put into operation. You know, we tend to be interested in things that really work. For example, we like to buy products that live up to their claim. There's a lot of brands, right, that promise to remove stains or take away this pain or make you lose that weight or make your job easier in some way. And some of the brands really live up to their claim. They really deliver. And if you find something that works, you know, you stick with it and you recommend it to other people. So before you make a purchase or uh, before you go to the store and buy things, some of you do what I do nowadays, right? You Google reviews and you read online to find out what other people are saying about this product. So I might go off, say, to search for a new vacuum cleaner when ours gives up the ghost or is beyond repair and, or something like that. And I'll be gone for a couple of hours and Rena will call my phone and she'll say, are you still at the store? And I'm like, yeah, I've been standing here for like an hour and a half reading product reviews uh, in, the, in, the, in the aisle trying to make a purchase because I, I want to see something uh, that, that is highly recommended so that I know it works. It functions in the way we, we want it to. In fact, after the internet connected practically everybody on the planet together. The product review is one of the major things driving uh, market industry today. Well, James is commending prayer that works. He, even through the life of Elijah, has a bit of a product review, if we think of it that way in this section. Prayer that lives up to its claim. How many times have you heard someone say, you know, I prayed about that, but nothing happened? Could it be that we don't pray like we should or that we're bored or disinterested in prayer because, frankly, we don't see the point? We're not convinced that it's effective at all. So we sort of take a consumer mentality toward prayer rather than trusting God. We don't want to make the investment to pray until we're convinced that, that this prayer will, will change something or until we're in a situation desperate enough where we'll try anything, even spending long time in prayer. Well, James might say to us, maybe you really haven't learned to pray. Maybe you're directing words to God, but are they really prayer? The right kind of prayer, the prayer that moves the heart of God, even as God moves the heart of the worshiper to pray. We've sung Martin Luther's Reformation hymn this morning, A Mighty Fortress is Our God. 
Martin Luther believed in the effectiveness of prayer, and he wrote a lot about prayer. Luther is the one that is credited with saying that he was so busy, he needed to spend long time in prayer every morning so that he would be able to accomplish everything he had to get done that day. He famously said, if I fail to spend two hours in prayer each morning, the devil gets the victory throughout the day. I have so much business, I cannot get on without spending three hours daily in prayer. You and I can scarcely believe what Luther is saying. I mean, this must be legend, right? This can't possibly be true. We think that he must be greatly exaggerating because when we think of all that we have to do in a day, for us, three hours in prayer seems counterproductive. In fact, when we spend 10 minutes in prayer, our minds begin to wander, and usually they wander to all the other things that we think we have to do. Well, maybe it's because Luther had figured out that the prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Or as Luther himself translated James 5.16, the prayer of the righteous can do much if it is earnest. So what makes our prayers effective? Which is to say, how do we know we're really praying? How do we know that we're really engaging with our wise and loving and glorious creator? Well, clustered around this statement about the effectiveness of prayer, we find various ways that James encourages us to pray. And these become then the ways we know in the text that we're praying in the right way, that we're praying effectively. And two of these ways we've already considered in in previous weeks. So the first is to pray personally. In other words, when you have a need or a problem, you must personally put prayer into operation. That's why James says in chapter 4, verse 2, you do not have because you do not ask. There will be zero effectiveness in answers to the prayers we never pray. So James says, is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise, which is also, as we've seen, a form of prayer. In fact, as we have seen in uh, the, the, the desperate requests that we see in the Bible, they're, they're almost always followed by grateful praise. And both of those are forms of prayer. They're both directed to God. Prayer is the believer's ability that Jesus himself made possible to communicate with our loving Father in prayer and praise. But James goes an essential step further. He says also to pray corporately. In other words, we have to engage. Sorry about that. Oh, well, anyway, there it is. Pray corporately. We have to engage together in prayer with one another. In fact, we know that Jesus speaks of entering into your closet for personal prayer. But much of the prayer, if you read the Bible, that takes place is public prayer that happens when the community gathers together. And James gives us two examples uh, starting in verse 14. The first is when the elders of the church gather to pray with church members. He says, is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up, and if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. And we, we worked through that teaching last week 
here in James. But one of the major takeaways is that our prayer is encouraged by one another in the body of Christ, and not just on the pastoral level with pastors gathering with their people to pray, but it should be on a normal personal level as well. So James continues, therefore confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. This means we have to form relationships with one another in the body of Christ in which confession and prayer for one another is a normal, natural part of living in community with one another. We do this in a general sense when we meet here and a Wednesday night and other locations, we have groups represented in our church meeting for prayer. And those are some of the warmest and encouraging times that we spend together. We also need to have those deeper, closer conversations where we say to one another, pray for me in this area, or I'm struggling in this area. And know that brothers and sisters are praying for us and supporting us. And that is one of the spiritual goals that we are hoping to accomplish through the discipleship relationships that many of you have recently formed. My own group started this morning during Sunday school. We finally got together. And uh, I'm very happy for these two brothers that I'm meeting with. And uh, I'm going to hold them accountable, and they're going to hold me accountable. And we're going to be praying about people that we can reach out to, that we can bring into the kingdom uh, in, in the sense uh, that, that Paul talks about in Colossians 1, bringing them from the kingdom of darkness and the kingdom of light. And along the way, we're going to encourage one another in the way that God has led us. And I hope that we can all find that kind of relationship. And we're going to be working on this over the next uh, several months in trying to connect one another in the body of Christ. This is where we share our, our, our deeper needs with one another. This is where we come together and confess our sin and know that we're praying daily for one another. So James speaks of the effectiveness of prayer. And clustered around this claim is the encouragement to pray personally and to pray corporately. But now, as we look at the text again, we see some other ways that James encourages us to pray. And these ways are not about who we are praying with, whether alone or with someone else. They have more to do with the condition of our heart when we pray. And I think you can pick all of, uh, up on all of them here as we look at this part of verse 15 and then the rest of the verses starting in the middle of verse 16. Notice that every time you see the word prayer in the text, it is qualified somehow. So in verse 15, it's not just prayer, it's the prayer of faith that will save the one who is sick. In verse 16, it's the prayer of a righteous person that has great power. In other words, it's not just prayer that is effective, it's a prayer of faith. It's a prayer of righteousness. And James uses Elijah as our example. In verse 17, Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six months, it did not rain on the earth. So here, effective prayer is fervent prayer. And in verse 18, it says again, then he prayed again, and the heaven gave rain and the earth bore its fruit. So I think we see here at least a consistency in Elijah's prayer life. It wasn't just a prayer of faith. It was faithful prayer. Elijah repeated the activity of prayer. And you can see that throughout his life in the end of 1 Kings and the beginning of 2 Kings when we read about Elijah's life in the Scripture. So these 
description of prayer, descriptions of prayer, translate into three more ways that prayer is effective. And we're going to explore these in our remaining time this morning. We're going to explore the first one for quite a while, and we're going to wrap up with a very brief uh, exploration of, of the next two. But along the way, I'd like us to look closely at the illustration that God himself gives us in his word here of Elijah and how God led him to have a life of prayer. So the third way that we can pray effectively then is to pray faithfully, to pray faithfully. Faithful prayer has two aspects to it. To pray faithfully means, first of all, you believe that God will act. You trust in that. You, you believe it. You're convicted by that. God is at work somehow, even if you don't see it right away. You're believing when you pray. Secondly, that you are consistent, dependable, devoted, reliable in prayer. Faithfulness is part of faith. So faith is belief and faith is carrying out the action of faith or faithfulness. And we see this in verse 15 where James refers to the prayer of faith. That simple phrase, prayer of faith, can mean that faith is the source of prayer, the thing that motivates prayer, but it could also mean faithful prayer, as we're reminded of in verse 18, where Elijah prayed again, demonstrating that prayer in Elijah's life was habitual. And of course, I'm sure as you know, Elijah is the great Old Testament prophet and a real man of prayer who announced to Ahab, one of the most wicked kings in Israel's history, that there would be no dew or rain on the earth until he said, and it did not rain for three and a half years. We probably cannot imagine a land going through uh, a period of three and a half years with no rainfall. Probably the, 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 they were waiting for the, the later rains like James talks about earlier in, in the letter. We talked about that a little bit. And, and those, they wait for about six months for those rains, and finally the rains come, and the rains did not come. So it, it looks like it's been about three years in the Old Testament, but you put the latter, the, the waiting for the latter rains together with the three years, you get three and a half years of no rain. Imagine all the green you see around you becoming brown, turning into a desert wasteland. Crop production slows and eventually comes to a standstill except for the places they can find water and do some irrigation. So there's always a great famine when this happens. And we read in 1 Kings 18 that Ahab, the wicked king, is desperately searching throughout the land for grass. They're trying to feed the horses because they're going to lose all their animals. So Ahab would have killed Elijah if he could find him. But to save his life from the clutches of Ahab and Ahab's pagan wife, Jezebel, which if possible was even more wicked than the king, the Lord hid Elijah by a brook where he was able to drink water during the drought and where God commanded the ravens to feed him. And when the brook dried up, the Lord led Elijah to live with a woman and her son from Zarephath, which is actually uh, up above the uh, north of the tribes of Israel in uh, the, the, the country of Tyre, where Elijah, met, when, when he met this woman, she was gathering some sticks to build a fire. And she explained she was going to take the tiny bit of flour she had left and the tiny bit of oil she had left, because remember, they're living in a famine. 
Elijah's prayer to stop the rain causes a lot of death and destruction all throughout the land. And he's going to live with a woman who's going to gather a few sticks to light a fire so she can cook a few cakes for her son and eat their last meal and they'll die after that. That's what, that's what her plan was, that she was going to starve to death. And during the time Elijah stayed with this woman and her son, God never let the oil run out. He never let the flour run out. And then after three and a half years, God sent Elijah back to Ahab, challenging him to gather the prophets of Baal on the mountain of Mount Carmel for a big showdown between the true God of Israel and the false God of Baal. And the false prophets, you remember, danced all day long, hoping that these that, that, that Baal, the, the, the storm god, the god of fertility and the god of storm, the god that, that makes bounty happen, would send fire from heaven and light the altar. But after a day of frenzied worship, they all fell to the ground exhausted. So then when it was Elijah's turn. But Elijah, remember, would not seek the Lord until they doused, until they drenched that altar with water, making it impossible to light. And Elijah the prophet came near and said, O Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel. You, not Baal. And that I am your servant and that I have done all these things at your word. Answer me, O Lord, answer me that this people may know that you, O Lord, are God and you have turned their hearts back. Then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt offering and the wood and the stones and the dust and licked up the water that was in the trench. And when all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and said, the Lord, he is God, the Lord, he is God. One of the most dramatic moments in all the Old Testament. Now, I'll tell you what, if I were James... And I was writing a letter, and I wanted to encourage the people to pray, and I was going to use Elijah as an example. This is the example that I would have used in my letter, not the one about praying for no rain. In fact, when you read the story in 1 Kings 17, there isn't, any, there isn't even a specific mention of Elijah's praying for the rain to stop. Have you ever realized that? We're introduced to Elijah with his oath, there shall be neither dew nor rain these years except by my word. By his word? Who is the person who can stop the rain for three and a half years? Only the person who invented the rain, who made the rain, and who tends the earth. But God's prophets are charged with the responsibility of delivering God's word. So Elijah is pronouncing what God said would happen. Well, when did God say that he was going to stop the rain? It was a long time before Elijah was even born. In fact, even before Israel entered the land that God had promised them. I'm going to go back for a few moments to Deuteronomy chapter 11. I'll have all the words on the screen as normal, but if you want to follow along in your Bibles, starting in verse 14. Moses is speaking to the nation before they enter the land to possess it. And he has just told them in the previous paragraph, this land you're going into is not like Egypt, which is a desert land. 
And the only way that land can get water for their crops, the Nile has to flood every year. They thought the Pharaoh was a god, by the way, and that the Pharaoh was responsible for the Nile uh, flooding the land and making it rich so that they could plant crops there. That was how... That was how Egypt got water. They didn't have a lot of rain in Egypt. But God says, you're going to do a land where I'm going to rain on you abundantly and you're, it's going to be green and lush and you're, and you're going to, it's a land flowing with milk and honey and there's going to be all kinds of vegetation. And so he continues in verse 13, if you will indeed obey my commands that I command you today to love the Lord your God and serve him with all your heart and with all your soul, he will give you the rain for your land in its season the early rain and the later rain, that you may gather in your grain and your wine and your oil. But then he warns them in verse 16, take care lest your heart be deceived and you turn aside and serve other gods and worship them. Then the anger of the Lord will be kindled against you and he will shut up the heavens so that there will be no rain and the land will yield no fruit and you will perish quickly off the good land that the Lord is giving you. The chastening of God upon the nation of Israel was promised as a response to the idolatry. And there's a few different things that God said he would do to them. This is one of the main things. If they turn aside from the right path and serve other gods and worship them, God is going to shut up the rain from the heavens and their land is going to be devastated. The same warning is repeated in Deuteronomy 28. This is the time, remember, when God formally charged the, the, the nation of Israel with keeping the law and he listed cursings if they break the law and blessings if they keep the law. Among the blessings of God that he promised them if they would follow his word and not turn aside to other gods... He said, the Lord will open to you his good treasury, uh, uh, the, 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 ha- the heavens to give the rain to you, your land and its season and to bless all the work of your hands and you shall lend to many nations, but you should not borrow. But if they would not follow him and serve him alone, it says the heavens over your head shall be bronze and the earth under you shall be iron. The Lord will make the rain of your land powder. From heaven, dust shall come down on you until you are destroyed. No rain. Now, Israel was aware of these blessings and the potential for God to withhold the rain. In fact, I want you to listen to Solomon's prayer in 1 Kings chapter 8, where the dedication of the temple took place. And it, it says, when heaven is, uh, he says, when the Lord will open to you his good treasury, the heavens uh, w- uh, to give rain to your land in its season and to bless all the work of your hands. You know what? Um, I'm sorry here. I've got the wrong, I'm getting confused because I have the wrong title. Uh, up with the, where is what uh, Solomon said here? Uh, well, anyway, Solomon's dedicating the temple. And uh, when Solomon dedicates the temple, he reminds them that when heaven is shut up and there is no rain because they have sinned against God, he prays, if they pray toward this place, that's the, the temple, and acknowledge your name and turn from their sin when you afflict them. Then hear in heaven and forgive the sins of your servants, your people, when you teach them the good way in which they should walk and grant rain upon your land, which you have given your people as inheritance. So Solomon knows this. 
So all throughout Israel's history, they know that God has promised them that if they follow him, the Lord will open up his good treasury. The heavens will give rain in that season. But if they do not follow him, the heavens will be like iron. No rain will come. So what do you think is taking place here as James provides us insight that the drought was something that Elijah prayed for? He prayed that the rain would stop, that the land flowing with milk and honey would become a desert. That's effectively what he did when he prayed. That the economy would be destroyed, that people would perish. Elijah prayed for this judgment. Why? Because as the prophet of God, he looked around at the nation that had promised the one true and living God who rescued them from Egypt, that they would serve him and love him and follow him alone with all their heart. And yet the nation in Elijah's time was given over completely to the Baal cult. The priests and prophets of Baal ministered to the people, not the priests of Yahweh. And these false priests and prophets infiltrated the worship of Baal throughout the land. Baal was a fertility god, meaning he supposedly made things grow in the womb and in the earth. With reference to fertility, the symbols and idols used to worship Baal were grotesque and risque. It would be inappropriate, me, uh, inappropriate for me this morning even to describe that worship to you. But the worship of Baal involved orgies of the basest kind. This was going on all throughout the land during Elijah's time. With reference to making things grow on the earth, Baal was a god of rain and rich soil and abundant crops. And there's not a doubt in my mind that Elijah prayed, God, look at what your people are doing. Look at how they have abandoned you. Look at these false prophets. God, you need to do what you promised you would do, you need to withhold the rain. Show them that Baal is no God. Show them that he cannot control the rain. He's not the God of the storm. Bring upon them the chastening that will turn your people back to you. By the way, have you ever wanted to pray something similar about the country that you live in now? Or have you ever thought, how long can God withhold his judgment upon our nation? And when you thought that, it might not have been a horrifying thought to you. You were actually glad for it because for the sole reason that it would turn the hearts of people back to God, which is really the only thing, the only thing that is going to matter to anyone in all eternity is that they walked with God. Would you be willing to suffer and allow your family to suffer the chastisement of God upon your nation if it meant that your neighbors would be turned back to him, that your government would be turned back to him? You see what all of this means? Elijah is praying faithfully. He's praying, believing that God will do what he said he would do. God promised this judgment. He promised to withhold rain. Prayers of faith, praying faithfully, that is consistently, devotedly, while believing that God will act, are not based on what I simply think I want to see happen in my life or somebody else's life or in the world. The prayer of faith is a prayer based on what God has promised to do. 
and who he has revealed himself to be. You will pray faithfully and God will answer your prayers as you walk obediently with him, growing in your knowledge of what he wants and who he is. If you are not walking faithfully with God, if you go throughout your day not really even aware of God, if you're not reading the word of God and deepening in your knowledge of God, you won't get this. You will not understand what it means to pray believing and pray with devotion and see God's faithfulness in return. But you will begin to understand what it means to walk with God and pray after his will and participate in what God is doing in the world and in the lives of the people you pray for and in your own life as you walk with God. You will begin to understand what it means for God to use your prayers to accomplish, to bring about what he has already said. James says that Elijah prayed again and the heaven gave rain and the earth brought forth its fruit. Well, guess what? God promised to send rain. Not only in Deuteronomy, he promised Elijah he would send it. In 1 Kings 18.1, now watch this. During the drought, it says, after many days, the word of the Lord came to Elijah in the third year saying, go show yourself to Ahab and I will send rain upon the earth. That's what God told him he would do. So Elijah shows himself to Ahab. They have the showdown on Mount Carmel. God is glorified and Baal is shown to be no God. And the prophets of Baal are put to death by the sword. It is a new day. It is a reset in Israel. They begin to wipe out the Baal cult. So what does Elijah do? Does he look toward the sky and say, okay, God, you said it's going to rain. You know, and he's, you ever do that sometimes? You think it's going to rain. You're, you're waiting to see if you feel uh, sprinkles on your hand. He had not known that sensation for about three and a half years. But Elijah didn't do that. You know what Elijah did? He prayed for rain. So he went up to the top of Mount Carmel and he bowed himself down to, on the earth and put his face between his knees. He's praying for what God promised. It's a prayer of faith, believing that God would follow through on what he said. He said to his servant, go up now, look toward the sky. And he went up and looked and his servant came back and said, there's nothing there. So what did Elijah do? He continued to pray. And he said, go again, seven times, seven times. Seven times Elijah is praying, God, you promised to bring back the rain. God, the land is drying up. We're, 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 gonna, we're all gonna die eventually. God, you've begun to turn your people back to you. Thank you so much for that. God, do as you've promised. Be faithful to your people that you rescued from Egypt. Show them that you are no Baal. You're going to bless them. When we ask God to respond to our situation according to what he has promised, according to who he is, and we don't immediately receive an answer, do we continue faithfully in prayer? Do we continue to pray until God changes our situation according to his promise, according to his character, or until he comforts us with a measure of divine strength and endurance and says to us, my grace is enough for you? Verse 44 says, at the seventh time, Elijah's servant said, behold, a little cloud like a man's hand rising up from the sea. And Elijah said, that's it. We're going to get doused. 
And he said, go up and say to Ahab, prepare your chariot and get down. The rain's going to stop you. In a little while, the heavens grew black with clouds and wind, and there was a great rain. That is why Elijah's prayer about the rain, I think, having studied all of this, is really such a great example because it's obviously a prayer of faith that demonstrates both Elijah's belief in God and his faithfulness to continue in prayer. Now, having that background of Elijah in our minds, even though our time is fleeting, I think we can quickly cover these last two ways that we can pray effectively. I want to make sure we note them this morning. Effective prayer, prayer that works, prayer that moves the heart of God, takes place both when we pray personally and when we encourage each other, when we pray corporately, and as we pray faithfully. And James indicates, fourthly, as we pray righteously. That is, as we pray with a heart of obedience toward God. Because James says the prayer of a righteous person has great power. How righteous do you have to be to approach the throne of God and know that God will respond to your prayer? The answer is, it takes a superhuman, pristine, flawless righteousness. The kind of righteousness that has only ever been achieved on earth by one person, and that is our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. But there's good news because that is exactly the kind of righteousness we have. It is a righteousness that is not our own, a righteousness that we share with Jesus Christ having been placed in him. We know this as the New Testament people of God. And yet the writer of Psalm 66 says, if I had cherished iniquity in my heart, the Lord would not have listened. But truly God has listened. He has attended to the voice of my prayer. Just as praise is fitting for the upright, as the Psalms say, say more than one, on more than one occasion, calling to God to hear in time of trouble is also fitting for the upright. You're not going to know effective prayer unless you're endeavoring to walk in the will of God. How can you know the will of God if you're not walking in the will of God? How can you know what God has promised and who he is if you're not walking with him? If you are cherishing, if you are loving iniquity, as it says. But this, that if you are a genuine believer in Christ, you have been saved through the power of the gospel, you are already right in the sight of God through Jesus Christ. And if that is true of you, if there is unconfessed sin in your life, you can confess right now that sin and turn from it today. God isn't going to say, well, I, I see you confessed your sins. I'll give you a trial period. We'll see if you mess up over the next few weeks. And if so, I'm not going to listen to you anymore. No, no. That, we have a loving Father inviting us to pray who has given us everything we need to pray effectively today. And as belie- it's only because we're believers in Christ we can change anything going on in our life when it, when it comes to prayer and begin living a life of prayer right now. We can walk righteously with God and know that he is going to give us the grace to pray effectively. And there's one more way that James teaches us how to pray effectively, and that is to pray fervently. That is in earnest. Not passively, not hit or missed, but if you want to have effectiveness in prayer, you have to follow Elijah's example. And he prayed 
fervently. I, I know sometimes we say, well, you know, it's, it's not how much effort I put into it, you know. But what this indicates is an earnestness, a, a reality that I really do know God is going to answer. I do know that he is going to be faithful. And, and so I get intense about this. James says that Elijah prayed fervently. Literally, it says, Elijah praying prayed. And that reflects a very common Hebrew way of saying he really prayed. And the implication seems to be here that Elijah didn't just pray a single time to God. And God said, okay, I'll stop the rain. But rather that Elijah fervently prayed I think throughout those three and a half years that God would continue to hold back the rain as he said he would until God's people turned back to him. And I think that perhaps Elijah was encouraged to pray like this because he became desperate for his nation, desperate for the spiritual well-being of his people, desperate because of the sheer travesty of sin in the land. I know, I know you're like this, like me. We look out and, and sometimes you know, you get tired of your jaw dropping down. You just can't believe sometimes what people are saying and people are doing. And we don't even know the half of it. We don't want to know the half of it. Don't you feel a burden for people lest they get sucked into that, lest they're deceived and follow Satan? And Elijah had that kind of burden for his people and he got very, very intense and fervent about prayer. You know why is prayers are effective because he was fervent about his prayers. You might say, well, can I, can I really pray like that? Can I learn to see effective prayer in my life? Because, because we look at ourselves, we know we're weak. We don't use our time wisely. We doubt God. Sometimes we drift from his will. We're not faithful like we should be. We can't leave this passage without noticing that before James sets before us such a bold, faithful man of God to study his prayer life. James says, Elijah was weak too. He had normal human struggles too. James says he was a man with a nature like ours. Most of you know that after this amazing experience on Mount Carmel, calling down fire from heaven, I mean, that would have definitely gone on his Facebook post, you know. Uh, he would let everybody know that that happened. And, and the utter destruction of the Baal cult. Elijah heard that Jezebel was going to try to kill him, and he literally ran for his life in terror and went into a deep depression. There's your man of God who literally stood up to the king and all the prophets of Baal single-handedly with God on his side. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. And yet, he prayed fervently and his prayer was effective because he struggled to be righteous and to be obedient and to pray faithfully. And this you and I will also do by God's grace. Our weakness is not an excuse God uses our weakness to do powerful things. In fact, if you ever feel like, hey, I've got this prayer thing figured out and you're like standing on some mountain with, with a, you know, a, a prayer warrior, uh, probably you still have some things to learn about prayer. When we see God doing things in answer to our prayer, we think, how could that have happened? I feel so weak. 
I'm just hanging on, trying to be faithful. God takes that weakness and he uses it if we will pray, if we will be faithful. Our standing with God is not an excuse because we stand in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. We cannot be more righteous in the sight of God than we are in Jesus Christ, which means we already have everything we need. We just have to obey what God asks us to do. And James would say, that's what it means to live up to your faith. Father, thank you for this.